0: Well, please turn to Ezekiel chapter 2 and 3, which is where we'll be uh, tonight, which is on page 831 of the Church Bibles, if you've shut it from the reading earlier. Page 831, Ezekiel 2 and 3. In amongst those who made the list of Time magazine's most important and influential people of the 20th century is a man simply known as the Unknown Rebel, This is uh, how they account for the unknown rebel. Almost nobody knew his name. Nobody outside his immediate neighbourhood had read his words or heard him speak. Nobody knows what happened to him even one hour after his moment in the world's living rooms. But the man who stood before a column of tanks near Tiananmen Square, June 5, 1989, may have impressed his image on the global memory more vividly than any before him. The meaning of his moment, and it was no more than that, was instantly decipherable in any tongue to any age. Even the billions who cannot read and those who have never heard Mao zedong could follow what the tank man did. A small, unexceptional figure in slacks and a white shirt, carrying what looks to be his shopping, posed himself before an approaching tank with a line of 17 more tanks behind it. The tank swerves right, he to block it moves left. The tank swerves left, he moves right. And then this anonymous bystander clambers up on the vehicle of war and says something to its driver which comes down to us as, why are you here? My city is in chaos because of you. One lone everyman standing up to machinery, to force, to all the massed weight of the people's republic. Sometimes when you see human pride and stubbornness in the face of great opposition, it's stirring stuff, isn't it? It's amazing stuff. Whether it be this unknown rebel, this tank man from China or or those who led the civil rights movement in the US in the 60s or those who uh, led to the abolition of the slave trade, the likes of Wilberforce, we see their stubborn pride and we admire it. But then there are other forms of human pride and stubbornness, aren't there, that are less admirable or just plain ridiculous. Take this example from uh, my home country, Australia. I'm not 100% sure it's true, but it does sound like something an Australian would do. Here's how it goes. A rather impressionable student of Kung Fu had listened to it with rapt attention when his instructor dramatically informed the class that now that they had reached this level in their training... They could kill wild animals with their bare hands. So excited with his newfound skills, this martial arts trainee took the statement as gospel and headed to the Melbourne Zoo proud of his abilities and wanting to test his mettle. He found the wildest animal of all, the lion, and in the dead of night he slipped into the zoo, left the lion enclosure and engaged the suitable king of the jungle in combat He probably would have lost a one-to-one fight with the lion but he never got to test that. His naive fight plan didn't account for the enthusiasm of the lion's pride for a tender intruder. Nor did he give sufficient weight to the possibility that his instructor didn't have a clue what he was talking about. The remains of the self-proclaimed kung fu master were found the next day. Sometimes pride and stubbornness Human pride and stubbornness is totally unfounded, isn't it? Totally out of place. And that's where we reach when we get to Ezekiel chapters 2 and 3, pride just like the Kung Fu master. If you remember when we started this series last week in Ezekiel 1, we had this breathtaking picture of our God, very much on his throne, high and lifted up, completely active and in control in the world and right here with us a breathtaking picture but as we move to chapters 2 and 3 we are given an equally breathtaking picture of the human response to the Lord in all his glory a response full of stubbornness that definitely falls into this category the kung fu master did let's have a look at this stubborn response to the glory of the Lord and see if we can see ourselves and our world in it have a look at uh, chapter 2, verse 3. That's where we're going to start to see this response. Let me read these two verses, 3 and 4. Israel is a rebellious nation that has rebelled against me, says the Lord. They and their fathers have been in revolt against me to this very day. The people to whom I am sending you are obstinate and stubborn. Two words sum up their response to the Lord and his glory, rebellion and hardness, stubbornness. Firstly, this this idea of rebellion, that's their key response that we see in these, these two chapters, two and three. Basically, they have said to the Lord on his throne, we are declaring autonomy. We are declaring ourselves free from you, free from your rule. That's the picture of Israel in these chapters, refusing to recognise the Lord's sovereignty over them. And you see it in a number of ways in the early verses of chapter 2. Firstly, in verse 3, they are described as a rebellious nation. Now, at first, that doesn't sound that dramatic, but if you remember who Israel are, it's huge. They weren't just a nation. They were God's people, chosen, in fact, to be set apart from the nations, nothing like the nations around them. Their identity was grounded in the fact that they were God's special people, And yet now the Lord describes them as just a nation, no more than a nation, no longer God's people. By their rebellion they had declared this autonomy from God. They had become unchosen. They said to God, we don't want to be your people. We don't want to be told what to do by you. We are our own people. And again in verse 3 we are told that this this attitude of rebellion is not a new thing for israel it's not the, the slow steady decline that has led to this state of affairs this has been going on generation after generation right up to the very day that ezekiel hears these words and stretching all the way back we're told in ezekiel chapter 20 to the very moment of their rescue from slavery in egypt the whole history of israel is a history of rebellion from beginning Right up to this point, they have declared autonomy. You get another picture of it in verse 5, where they are described as a rebellious house. Quite often in the Bible, when it uses this idea of a house to speak of a people, a group of people, it's describing them as being unified, as one. But if you read the history of Israel, virtually in no areas are they united. They're always at each other, always pulling each other down and yet finally they've found something that unites them. They are as one when it comes to their rejection of their God. They are a house united against the God who built the house. And having kicked the king out of the house, they now have surrounded the perimeter of the house with the fences. You see it there in chapter 2 verse 6. Briars, thorns and scorpions is the evocative language that the Bible uses It's a picture of a people who want nothing to do with their God anymore, refusing to be questioned by him, refusing to be challenged, refusing to be changed. Now, as we see their defiance against the Lord, it's important to remember what we saw last week in Israel's experience, that all throughout the Bible it's made clear that Israel's experience here parallels humanity's experience We saw in the early chapters of Romans how Paul picks up this experience of Israel and it says that is the exact same way that our whole world has responded to God. If you look at Romans chapter 1, 18 to 20, you see how it says this exact same thing, that we have suppressed God. We have declared autonomy, refusing to admit that he is king, that we are his creatures. And Romans says to us that every man and woman and child in every age And every land has responded the same way. Our world is a house united against its creator, refusing to let him have sovereign sway over our lives, refusing to be questioned, refusing to change. Now you look at the Kung Fu master in the Melbourne Zoo and you think to yourself, what would possess a man to do that? What, what, what sort of thinking would go on in your head to think in the middle of the night, I know what I'll do, I'll go down to the zoo and I'll take on a lion with my newfound skills. Well, if we're seeing the vision of the Lord clearly that we saw last week in chapter one, where we see how awesome he is, that he is very much on his throne, that he is totally in control and he is right here with us, the same question should be on our lips when it comes to Israel and when it comes to our world. What would possess Israel to think that rebelling against the Lord was the way to go? The scripture's answer, the reason for the rebellion, hardness. Have a look at uh, chapter 2 verse 4 and again it says the same thing in chapter 3 verse 7. They are obstinate and stubborn. Sounds like a two-year-old, not a nation, but that's their description here. They are obstinate and stubborn. And throughout these two chapters, you have three different ways that this hardness, this stubbornness, is described. Firstly, uh, they're, they're described as being hard minded towards God. If you look at chapter 3, verse 5 and 6, you see that Israel uh, isn't, isn't from some language that God can't communicate with. There isn't a communication barrier, some sort of cross cultural issue that God can't get through. And yet they won't listen. And yet they refuse to have their minds changed by him. They are hard-minded. But perhaps even worse than that, we are told in this passage, they are hard-hearted. Their whole heart is calloused before the Lord. Despite His continual provision for them, despite His re- His redeeming power that He took them out of slavery and planted them in a land, that He protected them in that land, they refuse to accept his love they refuse to accept his promises they are hard-hearted before the lord and thirdly they are hard of hearing you see it there in chapter 3 verse 7 this is where the other two stem from why are they hard-minded why are they hard-hearted well they're just not listening they refuse to listen to me says the lord it's a horrible picture Israel's crazy rebellion against the Lord seems to stem from this problem with their ears. They will not listen. And as it was for Israel, so it is for all humanity. Have a look how Romans 1.21 picks up this exact same stubbornness when speaking about the whole of humanity. Romans 1.21 says, For although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him. But their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools. Futile thinking, dark hearts. And what Romans 1 does so helpfully for us is it clarifies this. It gives us the real picture. Given that the Lord is gloriously on his throne, Romans 1 labels such rebellion for what it is. Futile foolishness an independent nation an independent world well the scripture says the logical end point of being this way rebelling against god saying i want nothing to do with you." you you see where it all ends up chapter 3 verse 10 of ezekiel in exile that's where it ends up There's no bravado here, there's no self-determination, there's no where our own people in our own land know they're in exile. And to be honest, the geography issue that we, we started to deal with last week, the fact that they're now in Babylon rather than Jerusalem is just the beginning of the problem. Now, Israel's plight goes much deeper than that. Remember we read last week near the end of this book, in chapter 37, verse 11, it says, of their plight, their exile... Our bones are dried up. Our hope is gone. We are cut off. Well Let me ask you, do you see our world's stubbornness, its rebellion towards the God who is on his throne? Do you see it that way? Futile foolishness. Our world continues to live free from God, free from his ways, free from his word. And yet the Scriptures call that for what it is. Jesus' take on it when looking over Jerusalem was to say they are harassed and helpless. Our our so-called proud autonomy as humans, our freedom, our choices, our our self-government, our indifference towards God is actually not all it's cracked up to be. We claim self-rule. We we claim self-determination as humans. I'm in charge of my life when all the while we're living in exile. And all the while we're living with death hanging over our heads. Death, which the Bible says is the very consequence of such rebellion. Well, let me ask you, as you think about our world and you think about its rebellion, how can you be free when you are limited, when you end, when someone else determines how many days you have, not you? Doesn't that negate freedom? The truth is, Having declared our autonomy from God, our world sings the very same tune that Israel does. Our bones are dried up, our hope is gone, we are cut off. You know, the clearest picture the Bible gives us of this reality for me is in Luke 15. Perhaps the best, one of the best known stories in the Bible, the story of the lost son, the prodigal. If you've never read it, let me encourage you to go home tonight and read Luke 15, read the lost son. There is a picture of our world It's a simple story. It's of a son who's grown up, grown too big for his boots and decides he doesn't need his father anymore. He wants out, wants to break all bonds with his father and he says, basically to his father, he says, you know the bit when you get to the end of your life and and all the money you've made, it goes to me. You know that bit? Well, can we speed up that process and I'll get it now. We'll we'll sort of just assume that you're dead because that's how you are to me and I'll take it now. The father gives him his wish and he heads off into this distant country and for a while it's fantastic. But then the downward spiral begins and and it ends literally in the pits, feeding pigs and, and desperately wanting their food. It's a horrible image, a complete fall, but it's a picture of how God sees our freedom, our rebellion against him, our sin, Do you see how awful sin looks to God? There we are, in all our glory, young and free, actually a pathetic figure slumped in the mud and dung of a pig pen, starving. Or how does God respond to human pride, to our arrogant claim of autonomy? Well, he acts to vindicate his own name. That's what he does. He unveils his glory. And really, that's what's happening in these first three chapters of Ezekiel. Last week, we saw that glory unveiled to a human just like us. All the way through these two chapters we're looking at tonight, Ezekiel is described as Ben-Adam, mere man, just like us. Well, what happens when God unveils his glory to a mere human? Do you see it there in chapter 1, verse 28? Verse 28. All the pretending stops. All the rebellion, the autonomy, all the hard-mindedness and hard-heartedness collapses. When I saw it, I fell face down, says Ezekiel. Confronted by the sovereign glory of the Lord, Ezekiel is symbolically and literally slain before him. But God hasn't just unveiled his glory just to put Ezekiel in his place, just to see him fall before him. Have a look at chapter 2, verse 1 and 2. And I heard the voice of one speaking, and he said to me, Son of man, stand up on your feet, and I will speak to you. And as he spoke, the Spirit came into me, and he raised me to my feet, and I heard him speaking to me. Having put an end to the pretensions of human autonomy, the Lord now resurrects Ezekiel. Raising him to life by the Spirit. The very same Spirit that we saw last week gave life to the wheels and life to those creatures. Now that Spirit raises Ezekiel up onto his feet. God's Spirit enters Ezekiel. He is a recreated man. And do you see how he did it? Verse 2. God speaks. As always, when God creates or when he recreates, he speaks by his word through his spirit. The two go together. The breath of God and the word of God are inseparable. And let me just say as as just a quick pause at this point that there is a real danger for us in missing this important point at the start of chapter 2, to see how God recreates how God works powerfully in this world, there's a real danger in separating what God is doing here, the Word and the Spirit. Very often, again and again in the past and even here, I've had conversations with people who speak of the Word of God as as dry and lifeless and dull. And eventually as a Christian you you move beyond that to, to the exciting things of the Spirit where the real power lies and where the real action is taking place. But the scriptures know no distinction between them. God always acts powerfully through his word and by his spirit you cannot separate them any more than I can avoid having breath come out of my mouth as I speak. And this is no more powerfully seen than what God does next with this born again man that he has raised back to life or rather given new life. What does God do with a man like that? Well now he prepares him to live fully as a human should live. And how? Well, again, through the absolute height of his grace to rebels, he speaks to him. Have a look at chapter 2, verse 8 onwards. There's this fantastic picture of what God does through his word through a recreated human. What he does to Ezekiel and what he does to us and anyone who would submit to his lordship. Chapter 2, verse 8, the process begins. He says, son of man, listen to what I say to you. Do not rebel like that rebellious house. You see, when a person who acknowledges that God is king hears that king's words, he is utterly responsible to submit to that word. There's no no liberty to think differently. It's not Ezekiel and, and the Lord in conversation. Well that's your opinion. We are in fact to be the total opposite of Israel here. Do you see it totally malleable before God's word? transformed by it, our minds and our hearts soft before it, like clay in the potter's hands. That is the picture of Ezekiel here. And let me ask you, as you come before God's word, whether it be on a Sunday night like this or whether it be in your small group or even just on the bus, wherever it is, are you like that before God's word? Remembering who it is who is speaking to you. Totally open to that word, totally ready to be turned upside down by it have it challenge you to comfort you to prod you well that's what we're seeing here in verse 8 and it goes on in verse 9 you see the next step and i saw a hand stretched out to me in it was a scroll which he unrolled before me and on both sides of it were written words of lament and mourning and woe and he said to me son of man eat what is before you eat this scroll Not only are we to listen to God's word, we are literally to feed on it. It is our sustenance. It is the very means of the way we live life. And not just a little bit. Do you see as the passage goes on, chapter 3, verse 3, we are to fill our stomachs with it, feast on it. This is the main game. It's not not that little snack you have, the little treat after dinner, You know, a little bit of chocolate. That's not the word of God. It is the main meal of life. Fill your stomach with it, Ezekiel, says the Lord. To such an extent that as we see in chapter 3, verse 10, we get to the point where we take it to heart. Do you see the process from one who just listens to God's word to one who literally feeds on it, to one who feasts on it, to one who actually takes it to heart? Taking it to heart to such an extent that it becomes the very delight of our lives. So much so that even a message like the one that Ezekiel feeds on here, one we're told is full of lament and mourning and woe, will be like honey to our palates. And why? Well, the more we feed on God's word, the more we take it to heart, or well, the clearer our vision of the Lord will be. The more sure we will be of his ways, the more sure we will be of his justice, his goodness, his mercy. And the more times we spend listening to his voice and feeding on his word, we will find, as always, like Ezekiel finds here, the strong hand of the Lord guiding our steps, guiding our thoughts, guiding our hearts. How does God respond to our rebellion? Well, he unveils his glory. He raises us back up by his word. He renews us by that word. And do you see, The next thing he gets Ezekiel to do, and this for me is the wonder of the gospel, God takes this recreated, renewed person, renewed in mind and heart, and he sends him out into the rebellious world to declare the glory of the Lord. He sends him out into a world that doesn't want to hear that message. It is in fact the very reason that God recreates us to declare his praises, to vindicate his name, so that the world will know that he is the Lord. Yahweh raises up the prophet Ezekiel and he renews this prophet so that he might send him to this rebellious nation to a people just like him to a people who will not listen. That's that last bit's the sting in the tail. Did you see it repeated again and again whether they listen or fail to listen? To be honest, I don't think when God says that he's saying it's a 50-50 bet. It could go either way. He knows they won't listen. You ever felt that way? When it comes to, to the mission God gives us in this world, to, to proclaim the Lord, to proclaim it to our city, to, to the village, to, to our, even our families. People who are perfectly happy living autonomously from God, whose minds and hearts are hardened to God and His Word. You know, you think about the, these guest events we have coming up and you think about people that you've asked again and again to just these sort of things and they've said no again and again when you've said Come and hear a talk that will explain why Jesus makes such a difference. And you may as well have been speaking in Spanish. In fact, that might have got further. You ever felt that way? Or what about when it gets even closer to home than just colleagues, when it's family and friends? Now, I think about my brother and sister who I've mentioned before, both not Christians. Now, I love them. They're they're beautiful people. They're, They're a hoot to be around. But they're in exile. And I I look at their rebellion and their stubbornness over many years and to be honest I see my own as it was for some 13 years. And to be honest uh, when I'm being really honest I I even see it now in myself when it comes to God's word. My tendency to disobey it, my, my tendency to second guess God and his ways my tendency to harden my heart to his word when it gets uncomfortable, when it asks for more change than I'm prepared to give. And I'm sure it's the same for you. It's easy to look at ourselves and then even look at our world and see this mission of living and speaking for the glory of God as a futile exercise. It's easy to look at our world and agree with, with the poet W.H. Auden who said when speaking of humanity, they would rather be ruined than changed. Well, if that's where you're at, and I confess it's me all too often, take heart. The mission God gives us is just like the one he gives Ezekiel. And the mission he gives Ezekiel is illustrated beautifully for us near the end of this book in Ezekiel 37. We'll turn to that there uh, just before we finish. Ezekiel 37 is a wonderful picture of this mission, this seemingly futile mission that he is giving Ezekiel and he gives us in this world. Chapter 37. The Lord set me in the middle of a valley. It was full of bones. He led me back and forth among them and and I saw a great many bones on the floor of the valley, bones that were very dry. And he asked me, Son of man, can these bones live? And I said, O sovereign Lord, you alone know. And then he said to me, speak to these bones and say to them, dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. This is what the Sovereign Lord says to these bones, I will make my breath enter you and you will come to life. Can there be life in Sheffield, in Ford, in my family? Amongst a people who seem so free from God, so hardened to him who are, in the words of Ephesians 2, dead in their sins, bones dried up, hope gone, cut off? Answer? Or isn't that the very place that God raised your dry bones up from? When he spoke the word of life into your heart, the word of the glory of God in the face of Christ, the word about his son, Jesus of Nazareth, Was it not that very spirit of God and the word of God that went to work in your life shouting live? And is it not that same word and same spirit that works even now bringing you even more to life in him? Well, if you know that, take heart, listen to his word, don't rebel, feed on it, feast on it, take it to heart, savor it. And speak it to the valley around us. Let's pray.